And you say, as long as I'm here, no one can hurt you. Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with singer and songwriter Dara Star Tucker. On her self-titled sixth album, she continues her music evolution. Referred to as a fighter for social justice, wielding music as a bomb, she melds her presence as a jazz and roots singer-songwriter with her growing notoriety as a social media commentator on race, cultural equity, music, and film on this brand new album. Over the past 18 months, she has amassed an astounding combined audience of 1 million followers with the largest delegation arriving via TikTok's platform. She's got a great story. Enjoy this interview. So Tara, it's it's nice to meet you. Thanks for taking a minute out. And before we get into the jubilance of jazz musicians releasing albums and releasing music and playing live music after all of this time that we've been away. How did you survive COVID, the three-year time period? And how has it subsequently changed the way you do things now? Well, I was one of those musicians that was fortunate to be able to record an album during COVID. Um, and so that was a saving grace because that really gave me an opportunity to to reconnect with um, with who I am as a musician. And then also I um, have an online presence as a as like a social media commentator. And that was a real outlet for me as well. And so I just put myself into into that work and just kind of found a, a new way of, of expressing myself where I didn't have to interface with people necessarily. So, yeah. But, um, yeah, being away, I just am getting back to performing. My first performance was just a few days ago in Nashville. And so I, I don't know. It's like one of, it's like riding a bike. You just sort of, you get back into it and you're just, you're more grateful, I guess, after being away for a time. And so, you know, I, it was surprising to me how natural it felt to just to get right back to it. So how does the, how does the audience feel prior to like now versus prior to the pandemic? Well, as I said, I just have had the one performance, really. Um, I did have a couple of performances, a few performances last year. And I think we're all just more grateful. You know, I think I just it, with with any performance that I've had last year or this year, um, I think I've just felt that just just that extra bit of warmth and enthusiasm and excitement at just, wow, we get to do this. There's just a a gratefulness, I think, in on, on all our parts to to be back at it again. So what does it mean to have material come out now? Does it feel more triumphant? Like I'm back. This is it. Let's go. Um, yeah. Well, like I said, I, I released an album in 2021. And so I, I don't feel like I've necessarily been completely out during the pandemic. Um, I am really grateful now to be coming back with even more original music. That's, that's the, you know, where the celebration is kind of happening for me because I feel like I'm, I'm a songwriter fundamentally. And I sing as as a way of delivering those songs to people. And so I'm I'm really, really grateful that I did not have to sit out for, you know, three years or more. Um, but to to come back now with music that I can actually present to people because that last album, you know, we really didn't get to tour with it or anything. So yeah, just gratefulness all around. Gratefulness to be getting my music out there, gratefulness um to be before audiences that are just, you know, even even more appreciative than than they were previously. So this is your sixth album. What are you hoping the listener gets from this project? Well, I hope they get a bit of, of, of my heart and my soul, which is what I try to put into my music, particularly with the songs that I write. And I very carefully choose the cover songs that I do as well. But I, I hope that they come away, um, first of all, knowing me 
more deeply as an artist and as a human being and just kind of locking into, you know, the who of, of who I am and then finding their, their own place to, to healing. The album is, you know, if, if it has a loose theme, it's probably healing and recovery. And I think a lot of us are, are in that, that space right now, post pandemic of, of healing and recovering from a lot of things. I was just talking to um, my husband earlier today and saying, Hey, you know, even with, you know, whether we wear a mask or whether we don't wear a mask. And a lot of that is, you know, at this point is maybe more psychological and just, you know, we're all kind of recovering from the trauma of what we've been through. And we need to acknowledge that we are in a place of, you know, having been really washed ashore. So just kind of taking time to sit with our feelings and evaluate where we are. And, and that's, that's the kind of album that it is. It's an album that's, that's focused on, on personal healing. Let's go back to the beginning of this journey. Where were you born and raised and how did this jazz seed get get planted in you to become who you are? Uh, well, I was born and mostly raised in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And my my parents were ministers. My father was a music minister and he was also a preacher. My mother was a singer. And I had six brothers and sisters and we kind of all came up in church and singing in church, kind of like the Von Trapp children and singing harmony and things. So that was my kind of first acclamation to music. So my earliest, you know, memories of music are of really a gospel, like the classic families of gospel, the Winans, the Clark sisters, the Hawkins, you know, families like that. And uh, we moved around a lot when I was a kid, you know, moved to Spokane, Washington, Detroit, Michigan, and spent time in Baltimore and um, Arkansas, California, all kinds of places. And so I feel like I've gathered influences from, you know, every region I've lived in and just we, we've grown up, you know, being acculturated, I guess, by so many different groups of people. So I don't feel necessarily grounded or locked into any one thing, which which can be a good thing, can be a very positive thing. But I would just sneak away. I mean, we had kind of a ban on secular music as a child because it was a very conservative religious home. And so I would just sneak away and, you know, listen to my little light rock hits and I would listen to classics, Ella Fitzgerald and big band music and Mel Torme and whatever I could get, you know, take six, whatever I could get my hands on. And I would put my radio under the bed and, you know, listen to Manhattan Transfer and James Taylor and just, you know, all kinds of groups that would probably be considered tame by today's standards. But it was very much a, you know, forbidden thing in my childhood. But I just, you know, I would go down to the, the end of the dial and just see what I could find. These little kind of, you know, off brand like college radio stations, whoever was playing something I had not heard before. And my ear kind of tuned in to a lot of a lot of standards and, you know, balladry and that kind of thing. So, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a lost art because we don't have to do that anymore. You know, yeah. I mean, you can if you want, but but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we have everything at our fingertips with the internet, so we can go wherever we want. Yeah. You know, yeah, like, it is a lost art of just having to really fight for you know the discovery of like what you connect with, and it's just all kind of. I would imagine it's kind of given to kids these days. They just you know they don't necessarily have to battle for it. It's just you, you've got all of this crap coming at you. And you just have to decide kind of what your maybe aesthetic is. But for us, it was like, man, you had to dig. I mean, we were, you know, digging in crates and just, you know, we had to, we really had to work for it. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think is, it strengthens your muscle, you know, artistic muscles, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, When you did finally get out and you had the chance to see your first live show, what was your first live jazz show that blew you away? I don't know. I mean, I was way an adult by that point. I had, I was out of college by that point. I had moved back to Detroit, Michigan. I think it was probably, it was either, uh, Tony Bennett or, or Harry Connick Jr. or somebody like that. Cause those are the folks I really 
started plugging into early early on, just kind of more the standards, singers, standards and swing, that kind of thing. So yeah, it had to have, had to have been uh, either Tony Bennett or Harry Connick Jr. So of all of these places that you lived in as an artist, what was the one that really tugged on your heartstrings the most? The word the word you felt more comfortable or you got really good influences or felt something? Oh, Nashville, Tennessee. I mean, that's that's where I just I moved from after 13 years. So I spent the bulk of my have spent the bulk of my artistic life in Nashville. And so it doesn't that, you know, it seems like kind of an unlikely place to establish yourself as a as a jazz singer, jazz artist. Um, but there is a scene in Nashville. And, you know, we just finished playing there an album release show there and just had such a warm reception from, you know, the audience that they they watched us build our, our career there. And so, yeah, just uh, there are an incredible amount of just incredible, just talented musicians who can do everything. You can't just be one thing in Nashville. You really have to you have to have that broad skill set. And so there were uh, musicians, pianists that showed up at that gig that that had played previous gigs with me because we brought down a guy named Mike, Mike King, who's an incredibly talented pianist from New York. But the guys who played with us in Nashville, they came to the gig and we had them come up and sit in and. You know, it was just it was just a warm um, reception that we received. But I mean, I I um, what do they say? I cut my teeth, uh, musical teeth, in Nashville, and I can't. I just I can't really imagine having had to do that in New York or LA. Even though I thought I was ready back then, thirteen years ago, to do that in New York or LA. But I mean, that those cities are just such butt kickers. I had a lot of foundational stuff that I needed to get in place before I moved away, which we ended up moving to New York a couple of years ago, and now we're in Philly. Um, but I, I'm glad I had the opportunity to to cut my musical teeth in an environment that was supportive and that was welcoming. And, you know, the people were were kind. And I made a lot of mistakes and, and had a lot to learn. But, you know, I, I it was it was good to revisit and just, you know, in the fullness of who I am now. That that was really cool. What what was the stage, the first stage that you got on where you were like, man, I can't believe I'm performing here. You really felt like it was almost surreal. Uh, probably, I would say a few years ago, I had the opportunity to open for Gregory Porter at, at TPAC, um, the Tennessee Performing Arts Center. That was probably one of the, you know, one of the first kind of larger gigs that I've done where I just felt like, you know, it was almost a surreal kind of feeling because he's one of my favorite artists, period. And um, to perform it at TPAC. um, Yeah, that was pretty cool. So speaking of Porter and and other people that you've been around, what do you learn from the legends and luminaries that you in turn teach younger musicians and players that you get around? I was having a conversation a couple of days ago with a friend of mine, actually one of those pianists uh, from Nashville that showed up and, and, uh, thankfully came out to our, our performance there and he was kind of asking like how do you prevent yourself from becoming intimidated by being around people who are just super talented and all this stuff and I'm like I you know I know that I'm not the best singer um, in the world I'm not a vocal technician um, I do what I do at, you know I, I guess fairly well or I wouldn't be doing it you know I do understand that but what what I really lock into honestly is is establishing a sense of artistic um, uh, integrity and uniqueness. I think for you know for anyone that does what what I do, you you really have to to invest and believe in that 
that sense of, of uniqueness. What is it that I bring to the table that no one else brings? Um, because you are going to be looking left and right. And every time, every time some new person pops up, it's going to be this, you know, squirrel, you know, moment where you're distracted and you're wondering why you aren't achieving or accomplishing things at the level that this person is. And I'm like, when I think about the people that I really hold in high regard, and I'll mention some of the, you know, the contemporaries, people like Emily King and Indyari or Samara Joy, who's just burning up the scene right now. And, you know, people who are just, to me, artistically, just so integral. That's what I lock into. I'm not really necessarily worried about whether this person is the best singer that I've ever heard in my entire life. I'm not necessarily worried about whether their, you know, their presentation or their style or their looks or their whatever is at, you know, just the most amazing um, thing out there. What I'm concerned about is like, is, is, is the songwriting something that I can lock into? And does their vocal delivery match that songwriting? And do I feel their heart? Do I feel who they are? And what, and it is there a sense of consistency, artistic consistency, consistency throughout their, their projects. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very picky, very particular about who I lock into and it has to really resonate with me on a heart level. And that's what I hope to to accomplish um, with with the music that I put out there. So that's it's just a super important lesson for me to learn because that stuff can mess with you. You know, am I good enough? Do I measure up? And, you know, yeah. should I be doing this or that? You got to know who you are. And so that, you know, the people I lock into and love that that's what they bring to the table. So on this journey as a musician. What do you like the best about it? What is the thing that ultimately motivates? I mean, you got recording, you got live shows, you got all of these different aspects that go into it. But what do you look forward to the most? Um, honestly, there's no, there's nothing like just those quiet moments that you have with that I have with myself, where I get to um, discover a new song that is coming through me. And it doesn't happen as much as it used to. It doesn't happen often enough. And it's something that I really have to fight for now. Um, but the songwriting process is my favorite thing of all. I mean, even over performing, even over being in the studio, I do um, love performing, but that comes with, uh, you know, there's demands that are being placed on you and, and you have to be on. Um, I don't necessarily have a problem with being on when I get to the stage, but I'm always kind of concerned. Like, is my voice going to hold up? Is this, you know, is it going to be at the level that I want it to be? And it's, it's a, you know, it's performance, but the, the songwriting process, it's, it's very solitary. And I just, I, I get to surprise myself and I get to, to rediscover that feeling of, of creativity, which um, doesn't happen nearly often enough. <laughs> Let's say we have a time machine. We get off the phone, pulls up in front of your house. You can go anywhere in the history of jazz and see anybody. Where are you going? Who are you going to see? Oh, that's a good question. Who am I going to see? I don't know. I would probably go somewhere. I don't know where um, back to, to the, to the mid sixties. And I would see Nina Simone. I'd probably go watch Nina do do what she does. Probably probably late sixties. I'd say about nineteen sixty seven. Nina. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's go back to those days of you trying the radio dial to get that station and to hear more jazz. What is it about it? Why do you love jazz? Oh, I think probably it it jived 
with something in how I was raised, as I said, I was raised in a very conservative Christian home. We listened to a lot of really kind of corny, like old timey gospel music and Christian music. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think lyrically, I, the classic songwriters are, are that, that those are my favorite songwriters of all time. Harold Arlen and, you know, Cole Porter and George Gershwin and Irving Berlin and folks like that. I think just because my, parents, my father specifically, was so deeply focused on lyrical content, which is a lot of why we were not able to listen to secular music growing up. It was like, what's going in your spirit? What is? What are you absorbing? And everything that you listen to has meaning. And we don't want you having any sort of influences that are um, th- that are vain in any way or that are going to, you know, take you in, in a way that you shouldn't go. And so when I started listening to the lyrics of those those old songs, um, I just I locked into that. I mean, it's just we, we have not had an era like that. I mean, we the singer songwriter era of the 60s and 70s and, and partly the 80s was was a great era for lyric writing. And the folk movement and all of that, uh, but the the um, you know Tin Pan Alley era and just the the Great American Songbook era, just lyrically and then of course you know uh, musically as well. There's just never been anything like it since then, you know. And I having grown up in a musical family with a musician as a father, and then me kind of you know entering my own world as a musician. It's just you're you're not really going to reach a higher level of of musical expression or lyric writing than, than the great American songbook era. You're just, it, it can't happen again. Yeah. So everyone out there has a perception of you, family, friends, fans, but you ultimately run the show. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? <laughs> well, this is a deep question. This is the therapy <laughs> part. <laughs> this is the therapy part. Now, is this artistically or as a human being? Well, I think they, I think it's like the circles of like who you are and they all kind of come together. What, what's that part that's shaded? Oh, the confluence of it all. Yeah. I'm a storyteller. I think ultimately, um, like I said, I have developed this whole other career as an online commentator around around race and social and cultural issues, um, politics and all sorts of things on TikTok and on Instagram and um, across social media platforms. And so what I do over there really does connect, as you said, in this, you know, uh, Venn diagram sort of way it connects with what I do musically. And so ultimately it is it is um, those are I do explainers like, you know, informational videos in, in that context. And what I'm doing as a songwriter and as a singer is that I'm telling stories. Yeah. And so, you know, ultimately I'm, I'm a communicator and I'm a storyteller, essentially. Great answer. Hey, if anyone wants to pick up the brand new album, live shows, anything pertaining to your world, where is the best place to go? Um, well, my albums are now available on, if they want physical product, they're available on, Am- on Amazon and Target and Walmart. If they want to listen to it online, it's available to stream and download on places like Spotify, Apple Music, you know, Tidal, Amazon Music, uh, YouTube Music, all, all, any place where you get digital music, they are available. Wonderful. This has been great. Thank you for opening up. Thank you for your time today. Best of luck with everything. I appreciate it. 
Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to uh, to have been on your show. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and singers in L.A., New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Dara for her time, music, and story. If you want to hear more Neon Jazz interviews, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us at YouTube, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.